Support for Oyster World Radio comes from you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, visit the link in the show description or visit patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio for only $5 a month. You get all of the behind-the-scenes coverage for how these random interviews materialize, plus you can tap into my expertise as I share all of the travel tips I've accumulated so far. So don't miss out and support the show today. More support means meeting more people that you would normally never meet, less travel headaches on the road, and all the ins and outs of everywhere I go. All for just $5 a month. Become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio and support the show today. Welcome to Oyster World. Radio. Hello, Oysters, and welcome to another episode of Oyster World Radio, the podcast where we broaden our perspectives by listening to the stories of people from all over the globe. I'm Nathan Lieberman, and in this episode, we bring on a jade carving master. Steve Gualiasi was born in the Solomon Islands, which are way off in the vast Pacific Ocean. It was hard to leave his close-knit community, but the Paunamu Jade was calling him. The Paunamu is the Maori name for greenstone, or New Zealand Jade, which is a gemstone that the natives use for many different reasons, including many cultural and religious purposes. The history of the Paunamu is truly fascinating, and I recommend looking it up. But I don't blame Steve for going all in on learning more about this stone, even if it meant moving from home. So how did a man thousands of kilometers away from any large landmass end up carving jade on the west coast of New Zealand? Well, let's not wait any longer to find out. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Gualiasi. Well, Steve, welcome to Oyster World Radio. We just had a really, really awesome jade carving session, which I've never even heard of before, before I came to New Zealand. And I think it's a perfect way to cap off our trip here. And welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So we had a really chance meeting. I stumbled across your website online, which I really enjoyed. I didn't know anything about jade or the jade culture or that New Zealand was famous for its jade until I showed up in Hokitika and met the right man <laughs> for the job to teach me. So, and it's really interesting. I didn't know any of the Maori traditions or what jade meant to the country. It's really fascinating. Yeah, Maori has a, a huge uh, impact with their Ponamu jade, which is the center of cultural activities. Yeah. yeah, it's so important to them from their tools to, like you said, cultural significance, passing it on. And this, I love the, even though it's really hard to wrap my head around it, the Maori concept of mana or the giving and passing of it. And they do a lot of that through jade. Yes, it's so important <laughs> as a Maori person, yeah. I know, and now I'm starting to get into it. I wanted to start carving. You inspired me to start <laughs> carving when I go back home. I don't know what I'm going to carve, but I definitely want to try. So it was a wonderful experience to me. And I have to say, I'm so curious how you got to this position. Right. How do you get to this master carver in the middle of Okatika? And I know you're being humble when you're looking at me like that, but I know you, what, what he did with my piece today, I'll post a picture, is, is quite amazing. So let's get to learn about you a little bit. Thank you. You grew up in the Solomon Islands. Correct. And for the people out there that don't know where the Solomon Islands are, you said it 
It's by Papua New Guinea and also off the east coast of Australia. Correct. So how far is it from the coast exactly? It's about 1,700 kilometers. 1,700 kilometers. So it is pretty far out there in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And what... I, I, I don't know really any way to start thinking about like life there or like how you grew up. So I guess we can just start there. How was it growing up in, in the Solomon Islands? Can you maybe paint a picture for us of like what your village looked like and like what you did on a daily basis? Yeah, I, we, we live on an artificial island in a lagoon and we usually go and plant our food crops in the mainland and fetch water. Gotcha. It's, it's, it's a happy life, but very subsistent level. Yeah, because you don't have much help from no. anything else. So you got to grow your own food, you got to get your own water, you got to use your own resources. Is it, is a lot of the day spent on gaining resources for the village? Correct, yeah. You go out there in the canoe and go and fish, come back and you feed your family and they go out and get firewood and that's all you do. Yeah. yeah. What was your job? What was given to you as the task? I think my, my job is to help my parents and my other distant uh, uh, whanau, the members of the tribe. Yeah. And everybody is sort of chip in to help others that needed help. So everybody in the village is is helping each other all the time. Yeah. So it, it's a big, it's a really close community. And how big was the tribe? I would say there are about three tribes there. The, the, the population of the village, of my village, it's about 300 people. Yeah, so, so only 300 people. Yeah. On an artificial island? On an artificial island. How did you make the island? Oh. <laughs> My ancestors <laughs> built this artificial island to stop from the main island people. They can't swim if they have some argument. Yeah, the main island people can't swim. No, they, <laughs> we call them the hill, hill people, and they call us saltwater people. Oh, okay. So if you ever had, or I guess they had an argument, said... All right, well, if you have a problem with us, come swim out to our island. <laughs> I hope you make it. <laughs> and it's so, yeah, um, that's really interesting. It seems like a really close community where everyone's sharing resources. That's, that was life. Like That was a way of, way of life. More, we're in it together, and we don't have help from a big society or a big country, so we have to almost get all of our resources on our own. Yeah. So what what was a normal day when you were growing up? Say you were a teenager and and really helping your parents out or helping out parents with chores. Like what what would be um, your job or your parents' job to help the community? In, in a village level, once you are 15 or no, 12 years old, you join... A, a group of young people that sleep in a separate house. Oh, okay. Yeah, and your job is any members of the community or the village want help, we all go together as a group 
there could be about 15 or 20 of us yeah. to help build a garden or um, carve a canoe. Or... Oh, so you were the emergency squad. or just, If someone really needed help, the 10, 15 of you guys would go out there and get the job done, get the job basically. Done. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so different than, I guess, how I grew up, definitely in the U.S., which is a more individualistic experience where like our family provides for ourselves and that's about it that's all we really worry about of course we can help someone if they're really in need but there's it's never such a community share environment and what do you think that was really beneficial i think it's beneficial in terms of uh discipline in terms of there's no political issues because everybody's there to help. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think everybody, you train to be, a, a, you listen to your elders too. They, they tell you what to do and you just yeah. do the job. Yeah. yeah. There's no real argument. No. There's, no. This is what you need to do to help yeah. the community. Correct. And I think there's there's a beauty in that. This is what you need to do to help the community instead of trying to meander and find your path, some unknown destination, <laughs> like a lot of, like a lot of us have to do in our, in our childhood. What, what, what would you say was the <clears throat> biggest benefit of a lifestyle like that? I think it's big, the biggest benefit is the ability of someone growing up to understand that a village is where you get help yeah, and help others that that's the job. You grow up and as an example, the young people that grow up close to you follow the same channel. And yeah. 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 So I think it's, it's a good leadership sort of a, a proactive uh, model in the village. Yeah, I yeah I like it a lot. And I can see that as you run this operation here, the jade carving. I, know, I see a lot of the pr- same principles, I feel like, that you learned in your childhood with your tribe. But before we get to that, that was just a teaser for everyone listening out there to how you got here in New Zealand in the first place. So you went to university in Papua New Guinea, yes. and then you came back to the Solomon Islands to help teach teachers. Correct. Where, of course, you met your wife, yes. which is a big change for everyone, of course. But yeah. she was from New Zealand and then as was working there in the Solomon Islands. So how did you meet her? So were, were you guys teamed up in the same school or? I used to run, we used to run a curriculum workshop at the teacher's college where I was lecturing. And because she was out in the province, she came in as an attendant. Oh, okay. And that's how I met her. So who did you see your wife and go, like, oh, man, yeah, she's really cute. I got to talk to her. Of course. Or, <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the move? Like, how did, you, how did you start the conversation? Was it, like, work first? Did you slow, slowly talk to her? I think it's or? so hard uh, in, in the 80s. It's, it's like it's not part of our culture to meet a white woman. Yeah, I get to know her on a um, 
it's very hard because as you grow up, we meant to have a, an arranged marriage. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I have not to be seen with a white woman so close. So ah. that was hard for me. But um, so you had this, what you're supposed to do element pulling at you too. Yes. Of course, you met your wife, and you're like, "Oh, this is great," but there's this added pressure. It's a, it's pressure, and I tell you what, when I married her, I didn't even tell my parents. You well, didn't? No. I mean, I was of course. So scared, even my tribe, and uh, after six months, I invited my parents to meet this woman I married. They couldn't believe. I, I bet that was a, quite a shock. Yeah, well, you <laughs> I was After six months, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've been married to her for six months. But I, was, I don't blame you at the same time. Yeah. That's well, difficult in accepting me back. What was the... How did you tell your parents, I have to ask? Like, did you just call them and say, hey, you got you to gotta meet my wife? Or how did, how did you tell your parents? Well, Something I wrote that difficult? them a letter. In my language, that I like you to meet my wife, and they were so curious. Who's this person? Yeah, and they said, "Well, you just have to come and meet her." Yeah. Oh, so you gave no, no description. Clues. You just said, "You got, you got to come meet my wife," and that's it. That's it. And what was their reaction? The f- oh man, they they came into my house, and my parents didn't say a word say hello to her, to Karen. They walked out. They walked out? They yeah. didn't say anything? No. Oh, no, that's not a good so, that's not a good start. I went outside and said, look, take a moment, but this is my wife. I married in a magistrate court, and if this is going to be a separation, I can't afford it. Yeah. This is a legal thing. Yeah. So please, this is the woman I love. And what they say? Next day, they came back. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they listened. <laughs> That's good yeah. news. And then the next day, they thought about it and said, look, yeah, so you go and say hello to Karen and shook hands and start to know her. And then, of course, if, if Karen's anyone like you, which I'm sure she is, she won him over. Yeah. She became part of the family. Yes. But those are some pretty tense moments. Oh. I like your angle, too, of it's already legal, and it's going to be really expensive to get separated, and so you're going to have to try to meet her. (laughs) That was smart. I like that. But that also led you, well, not, I guess not yet, because she was still working in the Solomon Islands with you, so she was still living there. She was slowly, I guess, becoming part of the tribe at that point, or were you guys separated? No, we... We managed to live together because I got another job. And, um, yeah, I treat her like my wife. Yeah, as you should, of course. Yeah. And then I was working for this company in 1984. She got pregnant and expecting a first child. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a big event in anyone's life. Wow, it's huge. <laughs> what was going through your head when you were having your first Man, kid? It was 
yeah, I, I mean, the whole tribe, the village was so excited about this new arrival. Mm. Yeah. And then she had to come down to New Zealand to give birth because of uh, problems. Yeah, so she had a medical problem where yeah. needed to come to New Zealand for... A, a better facility. Better facility. And that's when things started to get a little bit twisted up because you came here to New Zealand where Karen's from, your wife. Yeah. And fell in love with it. Fell in love with the place. Yeah. This is the great center of New Zealand. And I don't know how you can, I mean, the South Island is just a picture. It's like a constant painting. It doesn't make sense how beautiful this island is. Not only that, this area of Hokitika and Greymouth is also just a stunning place. And that's where you came. That was your first spot. Yeah. So what was going through your head? So you have a tribe back home and you're, you're having a first son, but then you love this place. How did you wrap that all and start to digest it? And then I've noticed this huge cultural center of the Maori people is this greenstone, Ponamu. And it's centered here and become an industry. Yeah. And my mind started ticking. Wait, what's going on here, man? <laughs> gotcha. So it was almost more that that drew you to this place. Yeah. Which, I mean, the stories behind the, the Greenstone are phenomenal. And everyone listening out there, just look it up. Google it. You won't be disappointed. And, but that that moment, that realization that maybe you want to learn more about this culture, this industry, sent you on quite a ride. <laughs> this is now you have a son and you have to move away from the tribe to come here. It is. have to move away from the tribe, your friends, your job. Everything. Everything. So how did you... So you, you eventually... You went back to home, came to the decision to move back. How did you even start? Like, what was, like, what, like, I want to move here. But like you said, you're leaving your job, your friends, tribe, everything. How did you even start to pack up and move? Well, I think you sent around your family, you got a new baby and one just born, nine. Corey was 1984, then Jackie came on scene in 1986. Yeah. So we decided in 1988, let's go down to New Zealand. Yeah. And being here, I don't know where to start. Karen got a job. We was living, staying with her parents mm -hmm. on the farm. I've got to do something. Because you can only stay with your in-laws for so long. You yeah. Even your own parents. You any of your family members you can only stay with them of course. For so long. Yeah. So I and at that time there was a lot of government running courses for upgrading your skills. So I offered myself to work on a gold claim as a plant operator for nothing. That's how keen I was. Yeah. And actually this is not the first time that I've heard this, which is Fascinating to me because how that's just not something that I've heard before I started traveling. But for for you, because at the time New Zealand was really struggling, ten percent unemployment, yes, and 
there, there was a, a gold industry, but very competitive. Yes. And you, I don't know if there's any other definition of hustle than volunteering to work for nothing, for nothing. And was that just, how did you come up with that idea? Or is that just the only option that you had? Well, not really. I've got other skills, but I think in the gold mining, you dig, you find greenstone. Oh. That's the angle I want to see where's this actual stone come from. Oh, so you were always hunting for the jade. Jade, yeah. From day one. Day one. Which makes sense. So you joined the gold mining plant to learn mining operations. Correct. But with the the future in sight was the jade. I like that. You held on to that initial idea when you first got here, that Maori culture. And volunteering yourself for six six months. And not only that, this isn't... This is gold mining. This isn't some posh corporate job where you sit in an office, an air-conditioned office for 40 hours a week. You were working like 76 hours a week or something? 76 hours, not 40. 76 hours a week. 76. So what was a normal day like for you? I get up at half past four in the morning. Half past four in the morning. It sounds yeah. horrible. And then, <laughs> and then you, you wait for your transport. You go to the mining site. You get yourself prepared for the operation, and then you work, and then after work, you arrive home around about half past seven or eight o'clock at night in the oh evening. Oh my God. And then you have to get back up at four, next half day. past four the next day. Seven days a week. Oh, so there wasn't even a break. No. You just keep going. Keep going. That's, was, how, okay, so this is where I think most people would quit. What kept you going? What was your motivation to get up and keep going again? I want to get my own place. I can't live with my uh, father-in-law for, you know. Of course, because you also don't want to mooch off them. And, yeah, you needed, you had something that you were holding on to. I need to save some money to purchase a property. Yeah. And then, suddenly, I had enough money. Because I told my wife, if you spend this money... I'm going home, <laughs> which is not a nice thing. It's not a nice thing, but she didn't spend the money, no. obviously. Well, it sounds like you and your wife are on the same page. So. Yeah. so, yeah. And I was still working when the bank said, you've got more than 20% of the value of the house. There's some money here. And my wife and my mother-in-law went looking for a house. I don't care what house they bought. You don't even care. You're like, I just want a house. Just anything. Just yeah. give me anything. Yeah. And th- that was, so the the mining paid off. They hired you. You started making a lot of money. And it was that idea of the house that kept you going. But you didn't even care what house it was. You just wanted a house. Anything. A house. Anything. Literally anything. Yeah. And that's really cool that you got it. But that's when things started to pick up afterwards and I, I feel like with every story that I hear it's when you're going through this gray area of like not knowing because you came here with literally nothing mm-hmm. pretty much no connections except mm-hmm. your in-laws and your wife and you got that like you know like that starting point yeah it was the jade but also the mining job and then from there you got your house and after that you invested in jade you went back to like trying to find the jade Invested in a jaded company. Yes. Worked there for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, things started rolling again, rolling again. You started carving in your backyard. Correct. 
And then that's when this whole situation started to come into focus. Right. And it was almost like a building process, would you say? Yes. So how, when you were carving in your backyard, then what? Because right now we're sitting in this wonderful two-story <laughs> workshop yeah. in the middle of Hokitika. How did how did that start progressing? I guess let's go back to the garage days. So what was what was the starting point? When did people start to come and carve their, carve their own jade? From my garage, my property, few people came, and then my wife said, "Man." My kitchen is full of, you know, why don't you rent a place in town? <laughs> so I moved into town in the year 2000, and I rent a place. And then 2005, this place came for sale, yeah. this property here. And I bought this. Oh, so this is yours? This is mine, yeah. Yeah. Well, I forget to tell you that I sold the bigger property, 10 acre block. Yeah. And I moved into town because... I wanted to be in town. Yeah. So I bought our house, which is a dwelling place, plus this studio here. Yeah. Yeah. So what what was, uh, I, I guess back in the garage day, what was the idea to bring people here to start carving? Was that your idea? Was it something that you heard someone else doing? Or was it a friend that wanted to do it? No, I did a survey. A survey in... There was a growing um, backpacker accommodation for young people. Okay. So I did a survey of a sample of 100 people. Yeah. How long they would stay in Hokitika, um, the price range. Um, would you, what rating from one to five you're interested in this? Yeah. And 90% of the result was looking really good. Yeah. That's a that's a big number. Ninety percent's a big number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I said, "Well, let's do it. it. Let's do it." So you were just taking backpackers, yeah, because the tourism scene was starting to grow more and more in New Zealand, which I didn't know was so young. I didn't know the tourism scene here was so young in New Zealand. It's so young. So you were there in the probably the beginning stages before a lot of this was built up. Correct. And you started taking backpackers back to your studio to carve jade. Carve jade, and. It just kept growing and growing. Probably the word got out about what you were trying to do. And all of a sudden, you have this place in the middle of Okatika. <laughs> I guess looking back on it, did you ever expect to be at this point? Or No, but I've learned a lot. I have a lot of people, young people mostly, coming through my studio here. I would say 80% of... People coming here are young people. Yeah. From 18, maybe 30, 34. Yeah. Yeah, that range. And yeah. just getting to know people from all over the world coming to your show. Oh, man. You it's name it, it's a huge uh, feeling and experience. It's not they come here to learn from me, but we share the ideas. I listen to them and... And that's why I make this place grow. Yeah. And it was, you have almost an, another tribe <laughs> to say. You, you have this close community of people. And just talking to, 
I w- I won't even say work for you. It's they they are work with you. Yes. In the shop, and you said that multiple people have come to yes. work with you, and I almost see a little. Do you, would you agree with this that there's almost a parallel with how you grew up of a community growth and sharing? Yeah, it's 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 a concept that probably developed in the village level when I was growing up. Yeah. Everybody caring for each other, sharing, having, and also I like to extend that, give power to a lot of these young people. Yeah. Power to make decisions. It means that they've got to learn through a lot of mistakes. And those mistakes, they learn from it and they sharpen up their decision making. Yeah. And their knowledge increases. Yeah. And I think that's... uh, And they work for themselves. Like young Andrew today was helping. I pay him. Yeah. But he still does his own work in my studio. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, well, it's almost a family. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's something about, because people are so afraid to make mistakes. And I think now talking about your life, you've had to make really important decisions throughout it leaving for New Zealand, maybe even what to study or go to study out of the country and then come back. And I love how that you're starting to pass that on to younger generation because where I grew up, the education system really punishes you for making mistakes, even though you're like, you have to be perfect. Otherwise you're no good. Like on the first go and that sheds a lot of the new like taking a chance on something new and i think you give that to people i can see it here already and it's really a great atmosphere and i had a great time this piece of jade around my around my neck is a i think a tribute to all of your hard work and just the amazing amount of hours and time that you've put into like this place so before i get on saying how great this place is, even though it is, and everyone should come here. Um, I think to wrap up the show, people really struggle with the journey. And it it seems like your jade journey started, I mean, you didn't grow up carving jade. Of of course not, but here you are. For someone that's stuck along the journey with, and doesn't quite know where the end is, what would you say to them to keep them going or give them hope that their work will pay off? I would suggest that you start off with somebody who is understand what is meant to be sharing and interactive and that power struggle. You've got to make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And that mistake, as a result, you become growth in your experience, decision making, and and become more giving as well. And caring and kind is something that you need to to be seen, proactive in it. And people can sense that. So my advice is we are we scared of making mistakes, but prepared to Prepare to make them. Make them, yeah. And make them over and over and over and over again. again, yeah. And don't be scared because those mistakes makes you grow better to be a true person who you are. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So almost enjoy the mistakes. Enjoy too. the mistakes. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Because we, we never know what the end goal is going to be. I know I struggle with that a lot is I'm always looking for the end. Like what, what is my work going to accumulate to? But I like the fact that it seems you go out there, you try, you make mistakes and you let it be what it's supposed to. Almost like this jade that we carved today. It just became at first, I was looking at it, I was like, oh, God, this is, this is going to be horrible. But it just became what it was supposed to be. And, yeah, something really, really nice about that. There's one thing that I forget to tell you. When I fit, set my shop in town, the local people here thinking that was a crazy idea. And sometimes they, they look up my shop. There's a lot of people working for me. And I said, no, those people there, I work for them. How come? Because they come to learn new skills, new experience. No, you go to school, special school to train. No, they can come here. They couldn't understand. (laughs) And I said, I work for these people. So that's amazing, turn around in their thinking. And I changed that attitude you could make anything happen yeah and i i completely 100 percent agree with that you can learn whatever you want to learn with the right people with the right material and it doesn't have to be so formal like you said you can make mistakes you don't have to have this piece of paper saying that you're great either you can come into the shop and learn jade carving i agree (laughs) well thank you steve for coming on the show and for everyone out there if you're in new zealand if you're in hokitika if you're in jade country come to bones and stones it you won't have a better time with better people so thank you steve thank you and we'll talk soon Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Oyster World Radio. And thanks again, Steve Gualiasi, for coming on the show. I promise I'll be back to learn more about jade carving. I can't get enough of it. Keep up to date on everything going on in the Big Sabbatical on Instagram at Nathan.Waters and the blog by my partner in crime, Jackie Gishbacher at GishOutOfWater.com. Check out the links in the show description for more information. Special thanks to Charlie Milliken for all of the Oyster Jam. Check him out on Spotify or at CharlieMilliken.com. That's M-I-L-L-I-K-I-N. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N at Patreon.com forward slash Radio. For only $5 a month, you get all of the behind the scenes plus some unique travel tips, so don't miss out. Thanks again for tuning in to Oyster World Radio. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then, this is Nathan Lieberman signing off. I can't take control of my life if I'm too busy looking at the stars and thinking about all time that's gone by. It's time for a change in my day to day scene. Time to turn around from that clock. And change me
Pero 